welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is episode 32 of our mini-series covering movies that were released between 2010 and 2019. We are doing Short Term 12, the Dustin Daniel Cretton movie uh, from 2013 starring Brie Larson. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and I am joined, as always, for this merry journey through this decade by Matthew Waters. How are you this fine Sunday morning? I am good, and do you know why, Ben? It's because this movie is 96 breezy minutes, and, and you know, we're talking about feeling good. They made it that short so that it would be happier. The director's cut was apparently longer and sadder, but I'm okay with it as it is. A 96-minute movie, mwah, off the back of, of Zero Dark Thirty, uh, this is exactly what I needed, so... Yeah, I think I think the only other movie we might have covered from 2013 was Gravity, which is also like a breezy sub 100 minute movie. Mm. You didn't fight hard enough for it. So. I mean, I I absolutely adore Gravity. It was my favorite movie of 2013. I think this was my number two. <laughs> and yet um, here we are. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I love both those movies. Like Gravity is just one of those movies where the when I saw it in the cinema, we saw it in like it wasn't D box, it was something else, but it was like when. George Clooney's doing his little plootling around space with the little jets. The seats move with him, so like as you're drifting, the camera's drifting left and the seat was drifting left as well, and it was just so immersive. And then the camera would like spasm out when she was like flying backwards and you'd just be like, Oh my god, this is intense. Yeah. Uh, Good movie. I didn't see it in the same cinema I saw Short Term Twelve in. I can't imagine what moving seats would have done to this movie. rock back and forth gently I guess <laughs> Just, it's alright everything is okay don't worry yeah and it is kind of it's, Yeah, as we said this is short term 12 directed by Destin Daniel Cretton uh, it is his second feature and all his movies took place in the same decade did they not? Yes, so far. He he will soon be joining the MCU, which is a wild thing to say, but I guess <laughs> when you're looking for Asian-American directors, it, it's not a terribly long list. I'm just, uh, I'm just thinking, is this our first director who has gone on to do an MCU movie? Because like, we did an almost MCU movie with Edgar Wright. Uh, we will hit one soon-ish. Yes, we will hit one soon-ish. Uh, obviously, Ang Lee did The Hulk. Yes, there you go. There was Ang Lee for Volume 1. In this but volume, like, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Aronofsky, you know, flirted with doing a Wolverine film. But this is our first director who... We are covering a movie before they go on to do a Marvel movie. Yes. He will be bringing you Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Good luck with the Mandarin, is all I will say. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's Tony Lung, and we love Tony Lung. We so. do, we do. But... So, have you seen any other... Daniel Destin Cretton movie. I have Destin Daniel Cretton. <laughs> I have not seen any other Destin Daniel Cretton movies. No, I, the only other one I've heard of is Just Mercy. Uh, um, yeah, that's the only one I've seen, which is solid. Like it's like hovering between like a three and a three and a half star movie. Mm. It's just one of those things where like it kind of falls into the pits of like it's just a, a, a biopic and it falls into the pitfalls of a lot of that genre. Mm. And it's weird to think that like he has the glass castle, which reunites him with Brie Larson, oh, and cool. did like twenty two million dollars at the box office, and that movie does not exist. <laughs> like, like he's done three movies now with Brie Larson, yeah, because she's obviously very briefly in Just Mercy, okay. but like there is a reunion between the two of them the year after she wins her Oscar, yeah, and just I don't, I know no one who has seen that movie. Well, I know no one has seen this movie, but 
<laughs> except and, you and me. <laughs> we are tanking our numbers very yeah. quickly this episode. Yeah, whatever. Everyone should see this movie if they haven't. So it's a very good movie. Went so. Tell me your story behind it, because I saw this in cinema, so I feel like... I definitely did not. I had never even heard of this. I worked in the place we worked, and a colleague who's seen a lot more than me and had a bit of a fixation on Brie Larson, now I'm thinking back, because he sure did recommend me a series of movies that she's in. Yeah, he he picked it out off the shelf and was like, you should watch this, and I, the front cover is kind of different looking as well. The original front cover. We will post a picture of the new front cover uh, with this episode because it's fucking hilarious. But yeah, and it's just like, yeah, you should watch this. And I I guess I rented it or something because I didn't buy it. I, I, I have since bought it, but... Or maybe it was briefly on Netflix. I, I don't know. But yeah, I watched it and I was like, holy fuck, this is amazing. It sure did make me cry first time. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, sort of trying to bang its drum as much as possible and and as i said at the closing of last week's episode when we conceived this podcast one of my first thoughts was oh god we're going to get to talk about short term 12 and and here we are doing it as you may have guessed this is a both (laughs) we both had this on the list if this wasn't the first thing i put on the list it was one of the first things i put on the list for this decade uh but you actually found a way to see it in cinemas and yeah, had a I'm... massive impact on its growth <laughs> yeah i'm that kind of wanky guy that like, i can't remember where it was it might have been pajiba the the film website was kind of like picking it up and so when it got its release in the uk i grabbed my film nerd friend and was like we need to go see this it was playing in one of the most expensive cinemas in london i paid 19 pounds for a God. ticket which I think equivalent to like 0.1% of its entire UK gross. <laughs> so like, which which puts it down to like, if everyone paid the same amount of money that I did to see this movie, that means only a thousand people. I would hope not everyone paid as much money as you did, but that's where we're going these days. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I paid to see it. I loved it in cinema. Like, I don't mm. regret spending that much money on it. I bought it on the Blu-ray when it came out. Yeah. in our work i definitely recommend it to some people but it was one of those things where it would come in and be like you get one copy so yeah. if you want it you you buy the single copy that you get in it yeah um, <laughs> i don't so, know how we managed to have more than one on the shelf but yeah yeah so so we are coming into this this is our second brie larson movie yes. of the miniseries but there are a few actors who are going to recur I believe over the course of this miniseries so i think that's probably the lasting legacy of this movie is that the cast for this movie is just insanely stacked, but mm-hmm. they're all people who would go on to have like really interesting, diverse careers. Well, unfortunately, Stephanie Beatrice barely gets a line because I... Brooklyn Nine-Nine hadn't started yet, had it? Or maybe it was just starting? I, I don't really know how long Brooklyn Nine-Nine... I guess there's a lot of seasons. Maybe it had. But yeah, she's, she's barely in it, uh, which is a shame. But yeah, it's just sort of... Here's six incredibly good actors yeah brooklyn 99 starts the september this movie comes out and they would have filmed it before so yeah i would imagine if this is made like a year later i mean a they probably struggle to get her but she probably gets more lines if (laughs) if uh brooklyn 99's already out that's that's like my only criticism really is i would have liked to seen her talk at all really she just kind of has some incidental dialogue but yeah, and maybe in that longer version she did, but yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's just one of those interesting conundrums where obviously Brie Larson is just beginning her ascendancy. Like, mm-hmm. I think both of us would come to the conclusion that she should have been nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Oh yeah. Like oh, she yeah. is 
She is absolutely tremendous in this. She's done a couple of things. Obviously, as you said, she's got that fantastic cameo in Scott Pilgrim. She's in 21 Jump Street. Mm-hmm. She's just done Don John. Spectacular Now is happening around the same time as this. That was the other one that got recommended to me when it was like, oh, yeah. Uh, that's how I put it together. My friend really liked 21 Jump Street, and I think he came out of that obsessed with Brie Larson and just found everything she was in. And it was just like, you should watch this, and you should watch this. And I was like, I'm only just now putting together the connection here. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what I knew Brie Larson from more than anything was United States of Tara, which uh, was the <laughs> uh, the TV show where she played like the prickly teenage daughter. She was very good on that, and I will admit to having a crush on her uh-huh. but it was definitely one of those like oh I'm interested to see where her career goes because she was also great in Scott Pilgrim and I liked her in 21 Jump Street and then she gets this performance which is just completely devastating I mean, in so she, many different ways she's a charming actress who's a really big Nintendo fan who doesn't have a crush on her yeah and then this obviously gets her room she gets her Oscar so I guess kind of a makeup. Uh, not that she isn't also really good in room but yeah yeah but I, I think it is interesting that like those are her two most acclaimed performances and they're very similar mm-hmm. in like I'm not like I don't want her to be pigeonholed as the actress who can really portray the kind of toll that physical abuse can have on someone but the, the fact that those are the two movies that have kind of gotten her the most acclaim well they're, they're her kind of two modes aren't they it's sort of mm-hmm. charming everybody likes them person who's just charismatic and generally doesn't have enough to do when she's in that mode or she is just a trauma factory a survivor of trauma let's put it yeah. that way but yeah. yeah we also have on in the in the docket for the cast caitlin diva fresh off justified season two is yeah uh, <laughs> so i phrase it yeah uh, <laughs> uh coming coming into this movie it's in the credits it's so weird to see her be like the 10th build name in this when she mm. really is like the second lead yeah for sure rami malik who i knew from the pacific at this point before he was going on to do mr robot <laughs> Second largest space on the front cover these days, though. I mean, we're not going to talk about the movie that he won his Oscar for, but he did win an Oscar at some point in the last couple of years. And then the interestingly credited Keith Stanfield. Yes, not Lackeith. Is he trying to? Is he, is he trying to make it in a white man's world here by dropping the lat? I don't know. I, I do, love I that like... he had quit acting between because this was a short film first, and he is the only person returning from that. And Destin had. Had a great deal of trouble finding him as he had quit acting and didn't own a phone. Which now I think back to Atlanta. Do you remember the episode where he convinces <laughs> Donald Glover to like initiate a series of trades? And the then he's like, dog story. Yeah, and he's like, "Well, I don't have a phone now." He's like, "Oh, I'll just take mine. I don't need one." And it's like, is this just you writing the fact that you actually genuinely didn't own a phone for a while into Atlanta? Probably. He's excellent in this. And, and I'd everything. keep keep an eye out on him because he's going to appear a lot over the course of the next. <laughs> I think he's weirdly going to be the actor we're going to cover the most on. Any Though volume. it's interesting that like I don't, he's never the lead in anything we're going to cover. No, but guess what? Because he's good. He is very good. But yeah, that's kind of the cast. Do you want to talk about John Gallagher Jr. and your love in the newsroom? <laughs> I mean, you've said it. I love the newsroom. Um, I think he's good in the newsroom. He has the unfortunate distinction of the person saying the offensive words in the rape episode but you know actors read the lines they're given uh, and i think he's actually really really good in this i'm surprised this didn't get him more work to be honest but hey like he's he's the one who kind of hasn't had that ascendancy afterwards yeah i think like, this is the best i've seen him in anything very good in tank Field lane mm, he is that's true and like he's done like he was in olive kitteridge and he's apparently on westworld didn't know that <laughs> Who, it, does that show even exist? 
Uh, uh, lots of people watch it. No one I know could describe to you what. I watched series one with, you know, a sense of urgency, and then the second series one ended, I forgot the whole show ever existed, (laughs) have not even remotely attempted to watch series two or... uh, They've done three, right? Uh, They've finished three now, I think. Okay. Yeah. If you say so. I watched the first episode of season two, there was a tiger, and then I promptly watched none of the rest of it. Is James Marston still in it? No, he died at the end of season two. Well, then what's the point? <laughs> you know, spoilers well, for the Westworld. Well, the Westworld. <laughs> the Westworld. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as we've probably hinted at, this is our only episode that we're going to be covering from 2013, and this movie was so cruelly snubbed from the Oscars. I think it is kind of like part of the ongoing mythology around this movie is that mm. it got no Oscar nominations despite a healthy amount of buzz from people who saw it, yeah. even though. The people who saw it are minuscule, considering even on a budget of under a million dollars, it barely managed to double that. <laughs> yes, yes it did. Although, how much marketing could there have been? So it probably did make a slight profit. Um, uh, if, you, if you throw in home video at this point, I would probably say this movie is, like, in the black. Uh, I believe it made more on home video than it did in cinemas, so... That makes sense. Yes, yeah, they never really talk about home video when they're talking about how much money movies make, and surely that can be enormous. It, it can be. I yeah. just think it's one of those things where you don't see companies talk about it because they like to shuffle the books. Like we have complete tangent. We have these things coming out nowadays where you find out that certain movies that made a huge amount of money are still technically in the red, and so people don't get residual checks for them. Mm. But when you find out why they're in the red, it's just because they keep passing the buck between different subsidiaries of like the master company. Right. So it's like, oh, we charge this company X amount of money for the movie, which means that like the movie couldn't accrue any costs. But it's just it's like Warner Brothers charging Warner Brothers home video for the rights to the movie. You are two episodes too late for the inside baseball talk, Ben. Um, <laughs> what a pun that would have been. But yes, it it did not make a huge amount of money. 1.6 million worldwide, such a tiny, tiny amount. I was sure we had a decimal in the wrong place. 48-ish million of that. Uh, 48,000, see? That's how <laughs> tiny it is. I, I've programmed my brain to talk about movies in terms of millions. Almost 48,000 of that comes from the UK, some of that being Benjamin Phillips. So it, it did not launch that well in the UK. It was the 28th highest grossing movie in the UK the weekend it came out, behind The Reef 2 in its second week, behind Drinking Buddies, another film no one has seen. Many other films. Uh, number one the week it came out was Thor The Dark World. Which so. I saw for free, so I didn't pay money for Thor The Dark World, I did pay money for Thor There you go, you Earth. redistributed the wealth into a correct place. Clyde with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Captain Phillips, Philomena, Turbo, Jackass, Bad Grandpa. Jackass presents Bad Grandpa? I did not yeah. know that is what that is technically called. Uh, yeah, they had to stick Jackass in there so people go see it. Interesting. Ender's Game, One Chance, Escape Plan, and Monsters University are your top ten for the weekend it came out. But worldwide, well, Frozen is at number one, <laughs> with one point, almost three billion uh just behind that iron man 3 just the best iron man um litigated enough uh, on into the real world.com but still amazing with 1.2 billion despicable me too with a pathetic 970 million the hobbit desolation of smoke uh 958 million 
Hunger Games Catching Fire, Fast and Furious 6, Monsters University, Gravity, Man of Steel, Thor The Dark World. I'm sure I must have missed it. I'll just skip down 10 or so. <laughs> uh, ooh, The Lone Ranger at 30. Still haven't seen it. After Earth, 33. Maybe it's 100. No, that's <laughs> The Host, followed by Runner Runner. I'm actually getting a bit depressed at some of these other movies making so little. 160 is The Bling Ring. 190, Chennai Express. I think we should just do a mini-series where we cover the movies that you decide to pluck out of thin air. I'm just picking completely at random here. 218, The Man of Tai Chi. Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, 219. I saw that one, A movie entirely in black and white. I'll keep going. I can't see it yet. 250, Pioneer. Oh, here we go. 274th, Short Term 12, Just Behind, Nothing Left to Fear, Girl Rising, The Face of Love, Kill Your Darlings, Ant Boy. I've, I've heard, heard of none of these. <laughs> none of those movies. We worked in a video store and none of those rang a bell. But suck uh, it, Grand Piano at 275. <laughs> um, oh. But surely it did better critically, right? No, because at the Oscars we have 12 Years a Slave winning Best Picture against American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, The Wolf of Wall Street. We've had weaker Best Picture years, but I think we definitely could have slipped Short Term 12 in there. We probably could have gotten Destin Daniel Cretton in for Best Director, but that's, again, Alfonso Cuaron over David O. Russell, Alexander Payne, Steve McQueen, Martin Scorsese. That's a pretty good group, to be fair. Best Actress should have been Brie Larson, nominated. Kate Blanchett wins for Blue Jasmine over Amy Adams, Sandra Bullock, Judy Dench, and Meryl Streep. Again, those are some pretty heavy hitters, but... Can we really not find room for Brie Larson? Look. Can we not find room for Caitlin Diva in Best Supporting Actress, Lapita Nyong'o, Sally Hawkins, Jennifer Lawrence, Julia Roberts, June Squibb. June Squibb. Never said Great that name. name before in my life. Doesn't we can definitely happen. find room for her in Best Actress, considering the fact that Kate Blanchett wins for a Woody Allen movie, and Meryl Streep is <laughs> nothing in August of Sarge Country. Yes. Like, yes. that is just, like, a legacy nomination that's just kind oh, of Oh, you got to put Meryl in. Meryl, Meryl's made a movie. Let's put her in. Um, yeah, and I... American Hustle looked real bad to me, but it sure did get many awards, so or nominations anyway. So. I just Amy Adams needs to keep getting nominations because one of these days she's going to win. One of these days, she's she's become Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I I like a lot of the movies that are up for Best Picture this year, but yeah, like there's nine nominations. They definitely could have had a tenth. Like we definitely could have lost. Like Philomena is a nice enough movie, but. Yeah. Who would have really thought it? Who would have thought Steve Coogan could keep a straight face for that long? Well, um, let's talk about what the critics actually like. Yeah, fuck the Oscars. <laughs> Under the Skin. I hate that movie so much. Yeah, but you know, the, the, the like, there's enough film it's critics arty. out there. Yeah, there's enough, like, it, that's the thing, is like, there's enough film critics out there who will have it on their list to make it seem more important. And I mm. like Under the Skin, but there's it's just one of those movies where if you hate it, you're gonna loathe it. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis, Her, 12 Years a Slave, Wolf of Wall Street, Ida, which is a very good movie, Gravity, Blue is the Warmest Colour, which is mm, iffy, based on director's proclivity towards female sex scenes. For Midnight, Wind Rises, fantastic Hayao Miyazaki movie, Nebraska, Snowpiercer, Bong Joon-ho, with his Western debut. Yeah. Got that Netflix money uh, almost a decade later. (laughs) Uh, Taylor Princess Kaguya, another one of the fantastic Ghibli movies that year. Grandmaster, are you a fan of Grandmaster? I don't know if I've seen Grandmaster. 
Yeah, I, think, I feel like Grandmaster is one of those movies that you probably like have seen and be like love it so much. But uh, Fruit Bus, you don't want us to risk having to redo the list, Ben. <laughs> Fruit Bus Station, the Brian Coogler's debut. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, and then so on this list, eight hundred eighty-three short term twelve. Not even enough acclaim to make it into the top five hundred on this list that I pull from. Mm. <laughs> hey, those who have seen it know, and everyone else does not. <laughs> everyone else is a big number. <laughs> it's a very big number. I wonder how many of our regular listeners have actually seen this. I, tweet I us. Tweet us when this episode comes out. Yeah, I, I do know, you know, certain people who listen have seen everything kind of like you, formerly me. But yeah, this one is sort of on the peripheral of even the people in the know, so... <laughs> I think, like, in the Americas, it might be more watched. Yeah. Just by virtue of being an American movie. Look, you can do worse things with... 96 minutes of your life and then watch this cast with this script you know like it's it's really fucking good it's yeah it's sad but it's also really quite funny um and mm. for not a comedy um it, it's it's actually got some really great little comedy moments like should we should we cut right into it let's so, let's go speaking of funny moments the movie opens up with <laughs> with a poop story <laughs> with a poop story it's it's like a tremendous little tone setter yes. so basically you have john gallagher jr telling the story to newcomer nate played by rami malik who you kind um, of assume is going to be the focal point of the story it's his first day here it'll be you know maybe brie larson's the lead but rami surely will will be the second lead as he gets to grip nope <laughs> Barely, yeah. barely consequential. Barely in it, and also kind of the... I, it feels like it's kind of... I don't want to say it's a commentary on this oh, kind of thing, but, so. it is, <laughs> but it is definitely, like, the privileged guy coming straight out of college, coming to, like, feel like he's doing something <laughs> he's, good. He's a fake work boy who talks the talk, but cannot, you know, walk the walk. And I say that as someone who I could 100% not handle this job that they are doing. But I'm not attempting to come out of college for one year to get something on my CV over it. So, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> even even though like in the scene coming up when Marcus shouts down Nate when mm. he's like underprivileged kids, like you're kind of on Marcus's side. Like you know it's an overreaction and you know why. Well, you don't say that kind of thing to their faces. No, like, no, exactly. <laughs> you don't talk about them like they're not in the room. Like, yeah, he's a tourist basically. But he has this one nice little moment at the end. But, yeah. Yeah, so this story is basically John Gallagher Jr.'s Mason telling the story of how he'd eaten some of the cafeteria food and basically very desperately needed the loo but had to follow around uh, one of the kids that they're taking care of as they kind of travelled around. Yeah, and establishing very early they're technically not allowed to touch them once they leave the grounds. So if they leave... All you can do is just walk with them and try and talk them into coming back, which is important because we'll see that exact thing play out. That's one of my favourite things about this screenplay is I've seen some people say it's a little bit clean, but sure. like everything has a setup and pay up payoff in this movie. Like But that's the kind of storytelling I like. I like setting up dominoes and knocking them down. Like, mm. And callbacks I'm always a sucker for. And this movie literally bookends itself with the same scene, basically. But yeah, so you, get, you get this very wonderful little story that has a very funny payoff with Mason shitting his pants and that being the unifier that lets him bring home 
this kid that he's following around. Who was, like, bigger than him and was like, if you get off this bus, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, basically. <laughs> and, like, I, I don't think he uses that phrasing, but they probably should have because, like, he's literally yes. about shit himself. But, and I love that the story is interrupted just before it finishes by this kid, Sammy, making a break for it and they have to just run after him and like i like that they can technically sort of tackle him to the ground before he leaves the full premises but yeah so they just sort of gently wrestle him to the ground and just sit with him while he calms down and then he finishes his story i i I just like that as a it makes it feel real you know yeah it it does this nice this is what they're day jobs are this is what their life is dealing with these emotional outbursts from these kids who maybe don't have the skills to kind of process their emotions in like healthy ways and that's their job is to kind of help these kids in situations and help them become adjusted to society and also to Mm. just be a caring voice for them whilst they wait for what the next part of their life's going to be because they're dealing with a lot of kids who are like in between foster homes or whose parents can't have been you know like a social worker has temporarily, like, basically given them a warning of, like, look, we're going to temporarily take the kid from you, get your shit together, and you can have them back. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and which it, is and why you not, get weekend visits and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's not necessarily, like, the kids are the problem. It could just be that the parents aren't... Struggling financially, have a drug habit, something like that, yeah. 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 Um, uh, and uh, you get all of that exposition from Brie Larson when she's training Nate. Like, you know, you are not their teacher, you are not their therapist. All you are here for is to make them feel safe, basically. Yeah, like, we, we you do not have a medical license. And again, like, all this stuff is going to get mm. paid off later where Grace starts to feel... Like, not that she, not she, she's wrong, but starting to overstep her boundaries in yeah, some ways. that she knows better than the therapist and she is going well beyond... Like, the sad, like, real-world America after the credit scene is at some point she gets fired for being too good at her job. Well, you know, what we would consider good at her job, but by the, the bureaucracy and whatever of, of the job, she at some point gets fired for, like, trying too much to help people or whatever. And really, like, the first chunk of this movie is very much just kind of showing the daily routine of this yep. of this place. And so we get introduced to a lot of the kids that like we get to meet Marcus, played by Keith Stanfield, and we oh. get to meet Luis. <laughs> Little shit Luis. <laughs> Little shit Luis. Like, you get this brilliant scene where Luis won't get out of bed, and Brie Larson just comes in with a water gun. Yes. Her, like, <laughs> kind of giving him the sort of squinted eyes, like, you're going to get up or I'm going to spray you kind of thing. Like, it's, Yeah. She's so charming, immediately. And she yeah. needs to be given how heavy this is going to get. But yeah, so... like it's The most interesting thing about this movie is there's a lot of balls that are thrown up in the air very quickly on. So the first ball is we find out that Marcus is going to be turning 18 mm-hmm. in the next week and will be leaving the facility because he'll be a legal adult and will be able to go off, which I find uh, weird. It feels kind of fucked up that one day before he's 18, he needs to be here. And then the very next day, all right, well, whatever you want to do, fuck you, bye. Yeah, (laughs) and, like, there's no sign that he's been able to get a job. Like, do they have, like, halfway house housing for him to, Mm -hmm. like, progress out of this? You know, I'm starting to think, Ben, that social programs in America maybe aren't funded well enough. Um, Maybe. I I don't want to make this a political thing. I wish there was, like, some kind of 
agency or, or institution in the US that was paid too much that you could maybe siphon some money away from it. But it's all it's all very necessary. They're in a lot of debt. They're the poorest country in the world. Yeah, sorry, that's very inside joke there. But yes, but yeah, um, meeting everyone and like seeing like the daily meetings, establishing this thing of level drops when Marcus is you know he so like you know Nate introduces himself and he says his spiel about how he wanted to work with underprivileged kids and Marcus immediately is like, yeah, what the fuck does that mean? And that a hundred percent fair. But you know, for cursing him out, he drops a level and and. They sort of, they very briefly go around the circle, and we cut away before we go further, but it's sort of like, state your level and how you feel, like that sort of stuff. And look, we, don't, we don't really get much explanation of what the levels truly mean, but like, I, it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's a, it's something that will be referenced repeatedly. Yeah, you need to, you need to go cool off in a room, around, not around other people, because again, like, we can't have this emotional instability around these people who maybe have, like, PTSD or, yeah. like, various triggers to certain things. And so that's why they go around and do the colours and kind of, yeah. like, and everyone's got their own colour and it's all very unique. Like, I doubt there is, like, a wall where I have to memorise what the colours mean. Like, you've got, like, <laughs> someone going silver, whatever, and it's like... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, it's very freeform. Yes, and speaking of PTSD, we get our first hint. Grace scratches her thumb quite a lot, mm. um, and it's a very, it's a very subtle thing. And we'll see someone does it a lot less subtly than her. Uh, literally, our next scene. But yes, this is your first sort of hint, and you will see her do this a few times before it starts to get worse. But yeah, and, and that's kind of it for the first day. So Grace declines a lift from her. At this point, we assume only friend Mason. <laughs> to go home and instead she goes to the abortion clinic to have a like, <sighs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to have confirmation that she was indeed pregnant and and basically like just very immediately in this scene decides that she's going to have an abortion yep just immediately makes the appointment doesn't even want to talk about other options yeah it's i would say this is not a film for people who don't lean left <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah and it, it kind of bleeds together. I sort of, in my head, like, Jaden arriving is a whole separate thing, but we do see a lot of her relationship with Mason as well around this time. So I don't Yeah, know like, I think that's... Wanna... I think that's the thing is like we get this like she goes home and we get this very nice mm. normalized setup of their their home life and we find out like that she's dating a co-worker and yeah. they're obviously living together and have been living together for quite a while and you get all these drop scenes of like cooking dinner and drawing uh, each other drawing each other and him being <laughs> jealous of her bike and yes all lovely and his absolutely terrible drawing that like how do you not fall in love with that man that homeless looking man who draws you to look like a dude with a beard you know <laughs> but then we see the tension between them they haven't had sex recently and when he does start you know he tries to talk to her and she kind of shushes him and deflects by initiating a sexual encounter and he is as he should repeatedly asking it I, i'm not saying him asking if she's okay is not a normal behavior but it's a lot of asking if it's okay and then we it, see it, why it's, because yeah, she it's very punches him. <laughs> yeah it's very obvious that she is someone who is not comfortable expressing her sexuality in like has some it, sexual triggers has yeah so like yeah i, yeah, I want to make clear normal to ask people <laughs> if they're okay 
but abnormal to ask them every two seconds. Yes, yes, uh, which I think and, is, and we see why immediately. Yeah. It's like, okay, and right. and it's not to say that Mason's like great because obviously, like in the lead up to the scene, he goes like, "Here's the number of days and hours." Yes, he does. Yeah, he has been counting. Yes, um, which there I are mean, some hints that, like. They do end on a positive note, but like it does kind of build to this point where it's like, ah, this is who you are, kind of I, thing. I just, I think it's a very nuanced look at this kind of thing where it's very obvious that he is incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. But even when you are this kind of supportive person, you and like you are with someone who is suffering from PTSD or anything like that, like yeah. there are certain internalized things that. Yeah can kind of bleed through and they're not supposed to be these kind of damning statements of like oh i hate you because we've not had sex in nine days it's just like if you are someone who views love as being physical like physical affection and stuff like that it can be well like i will i will devil's advocate him here in that i think he's kind of taken aback by how passionate she's being with him because they haven't been recently might be so he's kind of like oh are you sure because you know, we haven't for a while. But I don't want to, you know, I don't think anyone's right or wrong here because we will find out later. Certainly, she's not been, like... I I don't want to blame her, obviously. Her traumas are her traumas and should be respected. But, like, there are aspects of their relationship where she hasn't behaved on completely on the up and up. No, So I, mean, I don't like, want it to be, like, you know, she's an angel and he's a demon or anything like that. But, yeah, like, yeah. she doesn't come to him immediately with the like, news that she's pregnant. Yeah, and and he he will have his line about, I've been waiting for three years for you to tell me why you don't trust me, um, mm. and stuff like that. And it's like, that kind of stuff is very difficult because, you know, people behave the way they behave and they have stuff that, like, is to be respected uh, and is private and stuff like that but then also it can be incredibly frustrating to have a wall that you are not let into behind but you know it's how he doesn't seem like he pushes at those walls which is the correct thing but then also like you know three years three years and yeah there's there's a lot going on here in this 96 minute movie where he is not the second lead character uh, no he's, he's he's second build but it is Jaden who we yeah. are introduced to very oh, just how fucking good is Catelyn Deaver? <laughs> she's, she's wonderful. Like she's someone who's been on my radar, as I said, ever since I watched Justified season two. Like mm. just a star-making performance on that show, and it's downright awful that she got stuck on Last Man Standing immediately after that. Like she literally, like she does Justified in like the April March of that year, and then she's on Last Man Standing for like six years, and she makes appearances in things like Men, Women, and Children, the terrible Jason Reitman movie. And she's in Detroit, but it's not until she kind of like, I remember her showing up in Beautiful Boy and it had felt so long since I'd seen her in something where she actually got to do something. And I don't love Beautiful Boy, but watching her getting to do something dramatic again was a breath of fresh air. And then obviously 2019, when she has Booksmart and Unbelievable, and it feels like we're finally in an era where people are going to start using Caitlin Diva as well as she was used in this movie. Yeah, Jaden just... There's a lot going on here. You know, we get these hints that Jack, her boss, kind of saying without saying, give her special treatment because she is a friend of a friend's daughter. Um, And she makes the the very clear point, I take care of everyone. He's like, I know you do. But without saying it, 
take better care of Jaden. Um, and they just immediately have this great chemistry with, I like your name. Oh, it's a boy's name. Oh, I don't think so. Well, Will Smith does. It's just like, yeah, I mean, I guess he's the most famous Jaden I've ever heard of. Yeah, and the the little quips about swearing and like I'm gonna let that one pass because it was clever when when she's like shit I forgot about that I'm not allowed to swear and stuff like that. Um, Am I allowed? To, I'm not allowed to put penises on the wall and like if they, <laughs> if you are they have to be very anatomical and then just yeah they better be educational and then later seeing she has like four. <laughs> Like from a textbook, <laughs> an anatomy textbook, pictures of dicks on the wall, and she's just like, "Okay, you're you're a smart kid." Yeah, she's just immediately great. Kind of wild seeing her in this kind of emo sort of <laughs> like look that she's got going on, and like I didn't meet her for a few more years. Like, I mean, this is the first thing I saw her in, but like. Now I've seen her and stuff where she's older. It's also a trip to see her looking younger as well. But yeah, even even though she hasn't like she no. hasn't grown a lot. No, because obviously she's she's fifteen sixteen when she does this movie. She's yeah. uh, about twenty three now. Mm. So you watch her in Booksmart. She's probably about the same height as she was when she did this. Yeah, like and it's why she can conceivably still play teenagers at the age of of twenty three because yeah. I think both of her big big starring roles in two thousand nineteen were her playing teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it's going to be a while before she gets to do things outside of this wheelhouse. I feel. Yeah. Well, she's you... she's giving us well written, well performed teenage characters that are a good alternative to like a lot of the shit that is served up in that archetype normally. So. Yeah, I mean, I, in, in a lot of ways, it probably is helpful that she got went on to do that. She went on to do network TV because it's kind of a in some way safe environment like being on a mid-level show rather than doing movies and maybe getting caught up with the wrong people you're in like a kind of maybe more nurturing environment mm. being in that kind of day job and stuff like that i imagine there's a bit more structure than if you were doing movies and bouncing from set to set and stuff like that that she doesn't fall into some of the pitfalls that you see from other teen actors and actresses yeah yeah so like we get a lot of it like a lot of the early set to this movie is kind of just following the day-to-day yeah stuff that's going on here and so Jane's arrival is obviously a point of interest but we get the next kind of setup to what they do on their day job which is room inspections where they just have to go through and yeah they're not sure they're that- not allowed certain things and like Jaden isn't allowed to have her door closed because she self-harms and I I she'll make a comment about it of like you know if I'm gonna do it the door being closed or open isn't gonna stop me and I'm sort of like if you're not physically looking at her, what difference does that make? Like, mm. really? And, like, you know, nighttime as well. Like, you know, like, <laughs> there's no way to monitor her 24-7, and it feels like a bit of a... I think it's, it's one I of those interesting things. I guess to get things. to her if she does... Like, she could barricade the door might be the thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, they say that they got night staff. Yeah. Because, like, they mentioned, like, put your clothes outside, the night staff will do it. So, obviously, there are people on site 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I guess there is a different feel to when someone has gone off to just like chill on their own versus her, this person is very noticeably not involved with other people. Yeah. Like, like you, you have it later on in the movie where like, like one character is very noticeably not in their room and it just, there's a different feel, I guess, to how these things are. Yeah. Like, you know what people's movements and what they do at certain times a day. Like even we are creatures of habit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, But yeah, so during this room inspection, 
she removes a set of like very tiny scissors from Jaden's stationery box. Yeah, and goes through she... her like journal. I don't know, like notebooks, whatever. Like that feels like a an overstep, but she 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 just likes her art. Like I yeah, think that... I, I yeah, like I do like that she says how. Like very uh, when she first meets us, like she remarks on the drawing she did, where she's just sketching, and then we see like a scene later. She goes home and she draws with Mason, and like it becomes very clear that like she, you know, she sees a lot of herself in her kind of thing, and like mm. like she, yeah, she and they will end up drawing together and stuff like that, and it's yeah, it's just a nice little thing, but yeah, it it does feel a little bit like maybe you shouldn't. But that. I guess you, they kind of have to realise that there's no boundaries yeah. in these places. Because Jaden is coming from having been in multiple of these places and mm. being like, I don't make friends. I don't want to get to know people here because my dad's going to pick me up eventually. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. She makes a big point of like, oh, don't get used to me. I'm not sticking around and all Yeah, and it's like, I, I, I don't care about any of you. Yeah. But the more interesting find here is Grace finds weed inside Marcus's bed. Yeah, on, underneath his mattress in a hole. Yeah, and like she's doing this room inspection while they're all outside playing uh, wiffle ball, as they call it. And I really like the brief scene where she told Nate, "You've got to say no a lot early on because they're going <laughs> to test your boundaries and see what they can get away with." And two girls innocently ask him, "Do you want to jump rope with us?" And he goes, "No." And then Stephanie Beatrice is just like, not what we meant. <laughs> it's just Nate being a dumbass. I think, like, I think it's because she follows, she follows it up with that line about, like, you have to be, like, not... You've got to be an have... asshole before you can be their friend. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you could... Yes, you have to be an arsehole, but it has to be in, like, when they're trying to break the rules. Yeah, you got to pick and choose your moments there. Yeah. But yeah, in the midst of this wiffle scene, Louis, who... I feel like it's just a bit of a like just a little bit of a shit. It's just a cocky little shit. Yeah, he just yeah. give he just razzes everyone. <laughs> yeah, and like just he gets on Marcus's nerves. As Marcus is not very like he doesn't have much hand-eye coordination apparently and just isn't very good at playing with the ball. Mm. And after striking out Lewis, what what's the comment that Lewis makes? Um something about no wonder your mum doesn't want that's something about his parents, I think. Like no matter <laughs> I don't know, or which feels like such an overstep. It's into... such a shitty little, yeah. I you get the sense that these two, in particular, you know, rub each other the wrong way. You kind of get the sense that everyone thinks Luis is a bit of a dick, but like Marcus in particular, just his personality type. He's a little bit more quiet and sensitive. Just they, they particularly don't go on. He makes his comment, which I don't fully remember, but it's over the line, and Marcus starts hitting him with the bat, and it's like, yeah, this is why they play wiffle ball, not baseball, because <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he is cracking him with that bat and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I do, I do love the moment where Luis is taken away by by Nate and by Jessica, and they're sat there, and Jessica <laughs> kind of turns turns to turns to Luis and goes, "Are you all right?" And Nate's like, "No, I'm not." He just started hitting him with a bat. <laughs> Is this what they do? Like, is this what it's like here every day? Uh, yeah, Nate just really not getting it. Yeah, and then like Grace not punishing Marcus for finding the weed because not, like you can you can tell like he's eighteen years old. He's almost, worried about leaving this place. Yeah, like you can like from the very first moment when they introduced like the what is going to happen when he's going to leave this place. You can tell that the reason he's acting out is because. Like, he just doesn't want to go. Yeah, that, and that's that's her figuring that out, that he's trying to get busted so he doesn't have to go, kind of thing. But, like... Yeah. But the alternate is Juvie. 
Yeah, yeah. And and like, you know, we get her starting to open up for the first time about her stuff because she says, you don't want to go to prison. My father has been in prison and I don't want that for you and, and everything like that. And we'll get more on that soon. But yeah. he has this little, his little bonding scene with Mason. He raps. <laughs> <laughs> Destin Daniel Cretton said he wrote this and then Lakeith Stanfield made it good basically yeah um, and based a lot of it on his his own real experience which very sad if true but yeah just that the le- like it's starting out as just like him it's like a jokey scene where he's like teaching him the beat and like saying there's a lot of fucks in it and just warning him like that and it's like it's okay in this context and then just how hateful and angry he is at his mother and you know, he'd made that point about wanting to shave his head, and we'll see that in a minute as well. And, like, his main concern when they shave his head is, can you see the lumps from where my mum used to hit me? Yeah. And, like, that's why he grew his hair. And it's just like... I don't know how much screen time Marcus has, but the level of pain Lakeith Stanfield is able to communicate in every second of it is staggering. And, like, what a tragic character. And, like, it's why that last scene is so just, like incredibly joyous to see yeah even like, even with him not being there yeah 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 it's i mean like this thing is i don't i'm sad at myself not coming out of this movie and being i need to i i definitely came out of it and was like this guy was really good mm. but i'm sad at myself for not realizing that it was like when i saw him in atlanta a couple of years later and when i saw him in in get out i wasn't like oh shit that's that guy i no i fully from the moment I saw this, every time I saw him since, I was like, ah, oh, shit, yeah. Yes, you didn't have a number of years in between the two. Uh, yeah, I guess the next because time I would have seen him would have been Get Out and then Atlanta, yeah. Because I think the next time I saw him would have been Atlanta and Straight Out Compton. And I also like Mason is just completely unequipped for, for how to... Like, Mason is... I think he cares about this sincerely and like i think he's overall good at his job but the the line about you are not the therapist it's like it's very evident in you know he stops playing the drum at some point and like he just what can he say to him like, yeah I, I think it's interesting because you have mason who's coming here i don't think mason is like one of those i just want to fix you people no no but he's obviously just a good person who isn't dealing with any trauma whereas Brie Larson is coming with or Grace is coming with a hell of a lot more personal connection to this like she's wanting to stop people suffering the same pain well he has his connection in that he is a product of the system um, yes as we'll see soon but yeah but uh, he had a good he had a good upbringing and is trying to pay that forward exactly and I do like the brief moment where like after they've shaved his head um Grace kind of having that my ovaries moment when she sees um, Mason like basically being a good dad for a minute and you know she knows something he doesn't but yeah I, I do like that brief moment there because you know we've seen she's made the the appointment we don't know if she you know she presumably hasn't told him at this point and uh, you know if you're viewing for the first time and then like you know you can start connecting dots and like her potentially rethinking whether she's gonna have it or not and yeah, and then we get the kind of the first weekend visit where Jaden is all <laughs> like, it, so it's, it's Jaden's birthday, and yes, quietly. Grace <laughs> Grace makes her a little bracelet yeah. with her name printed on it and stuff like that. It's all very adorable, mm-hmm. and in, a, in an adorable little self-made packaging thing as well. Like, yeah. yeah, and and Mason's made made red velvet cupcakes <laughs> for everyone to kind of share around. Yeah. And 
Jaden is all happy that she's going to get to see her dad and go away for the weekend. And yeah, and she's uh, he... sitting there with that backpack on that sofa. And it, I mean, I think you can see it coming before it even happens. Mm-hmm. Is that he just doesn't show up? And yep. and Grace spots from across the room. She is scarring Y into her thumb with her thumbnail or whatever. And then she just gets up, and you hear the door slam, and it's like, oh fuck. And just such an intense scene. It's uh, like genuinely just like just the change in her tone where from the morning when they're having this good time when Grace gives her the cupcake and the present and she's having and the a lovely bonding time. And and, and, yeah. and, and Jaden being emotionally intelligent enough to like she tells her like I used to draw all of my mum's boyfriends and I would take forever and ever and I don't know why I did it because I hated them. And then Jaden's like, because you wanted to keep them away from your mum. And it's just like, the, the emotional intelligence there is, is pretty crazy. But Yeah, to, to just this, just lashing out with pure reflex in a lot of ways. Just and just the words... Vitriol. <laughs> yeah, the words she says to Grace and Mason and Nate and... Mm-hmm. Spits uh, on Nate. She spits on Nate. Goes, smears the cupcake in Grace's face. Yeah, yeah, which you were asking like why they need the stunt double, and I reckon it's probably this and the the, the window smashing scene are like the two things that they probably got a stunt double to. Yeah, do. I noted in the in the end credits there was a there was a listed stunt double for Jaden and no one else, and I was like, hmm, interesting, and I wonder if it's the combination of like you know, smears the cupcake. I think they kind of wrestle her against the wall a bit. Like she tries to slam the door on them. Like I just guess it's just an extra level of physicality that isn't yeah. there when they have to wrestle, say, um, this is Sammy a, to the ground yeah, or whatever. This is a very violent version of this scene. Yeah. Um, I did I did, <laughs> did find an interview that the Ringer did where they interviewed a couple of people involved in the movie. It was quite funny where it was like they got Caitlin Deaver and Dustin Daniel Cretton and and John Gallagher Jr. back, but then they have to put little notes throughout the article, say, like, Brie Larson wouldn't respond to comment. Rami Malek wouldn't respond to comment. Keith Sanfield wouldn't respond for comment. But Caitlin Diva does a little bit where, like, apparently she spat on Rami Malek every single cut of the scene, oh. and eventually <laughs> eventually the director and the DP came over and said, like, have you been spitting on him the entire time? Because we've been shooting Grace and Grayson Mason. Oh no! <laughs> so when they're doing coverage, she's still spitting on him. Oh, jeez, yeah. Raimi. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see him like apply so much sanitizer to his face and get a weird look from Marcus in a second. But yeah, just the level of rage and like you know, she's she's a sarcastic, slightly abrasive teen. But like this is another level where she's like just dropping all kinds of comments on Mason and like you know. Grace, you're a bitch, and Mason, you're, you know, you gotta get your, your woman to do it for, I don't know, like, just... Yeah, like, you can't hold me with your weak fucking arms, and yeah. just, just, just emasculating, and just lashing out in all the ways she can, like, it feels like the kind of thing where, like, I could see a world in which this movie risked, like, an 18 rating or something like that, and got a C word in there or something like that, just to kind of show just how... Yeah, it's, it, it's supposed to be extreme, because, like, we've seen some people acting up, but, like, this is another level and like i think seeing everyone in the home kind of being like whoa like recoiling a little bit yeah because like you know they must have seen some stuff but like for them to make this notable is is kind of crazy and then like you know they'll go and calm down together in the room with the weird you know the inflatable dog that they'll beat up together the the dog that looks so much like the it's fine dog from the webcomic okay and yeah grace will show off the horrific scars on her ankle and say how one time she basically almost cut her achilles like i've i've known cutters in my life but i've never heard like the reason to 
to cut ever explained as succinctly as it's hard to care about anything else in your life when there's blood coming out of you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, and obviously like you hear people say like, Oh, it's to feel something, but that one about like, like it make everything else is secondary. Like yeah. the abuse that you might be feeling or the sadness that you are feeling is secondary to the fact that like shit, yeah. there's blood um, coming out of me. I need to deal with this. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss, but I also don't want to condone suicidal ideation and that kind of stuff. But like, to feel something feels like such a cliche at this point and that feels just so like irrefutably logical almost uh to a scary degree them having that bonding moment and and yeah but then like to offset that with the nice moment of like marcus being the one and and that it's marcus as well that leads it as well and like yeah that, that sign that he is older he is wiser and having all of the other kids make her birthday cards i think this this was the moment in this rewatch that just got to me mm. was them making all the birthday cards for her and yeah. obviously like she does accept it as a nice gesture but she still decides to to run away yes she does <laughs> i really like that grace asks her can you slow down because like I'm, I'm gonna throw up like because it's like look i'm gonna follow you but i am not <laughs> you know i'm yeah, a bit older than you my you cardio gonna, isn't as good could you just you're not stop? gonna lose me stop this and then her just been like look would you stay back he's like yeah fine and then they just walk and walk and walk and walk and then reaching Jaden's dad's house and grace having to just sit outside because she can't go in like she can follow her she can get on the bus with her exactly as mason's story went at the beginning she can get off with her but like she can't and she can like you know go through the back gate but like she can't follow her inside so just sitting on the doorstep and it's like the rules here like she could do anything the second she goes in there and she can wait on the doorstep all she likes, but if she, if Jaden goes inside and opens her wrists, like what are you going to do? Like yeah. be the first one there when the ambulance arrives. Like, but I do like that there seems to be enough trust that Jaden isn't going to do something mm. that reckless. Yeah, like it's just like she just needs to see this for herself. And when she sees the house is empty and her dad wasn't even around, yeah. just her and Jaden having that conversation on the doorstep before they eventually return to Short Term Twelve, and you get this symbolism laden story of Jake oh, telling how do you get through this without crying man like this yeah. this this horrific story she's made up yeah of of an octopus who makes friends with a shark who in exchange for playing with her has to eat one of her tentacles mm-hmm. and then the eventual culminating in the shark eating the entirety of the octopus and then being sad that he doesn't have a friend anymore mm-hmm. and like it what I like about it is it isn't one-to-one. It's not like... The tentacles are her finger. Like, no. Like, it's... Yeah, it, it's it's very much that. And Grace very inc- cleverly intuits that this is about her father. But yeah. there, there isn't... Like, she is just using that as like her emotional connection to this person. And it's not clear who the octopus is supposed to be in the story. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, it's only Grace's intuition that says like oh this is because of the context in which yeah um, yeah like, I was told the story. like there is a alternate read where Jaden is the shark and like mm. she has like cut off friendships or whatever by having outbursts or so- something like that but I think because of Grace's own situation she's able to intuit that and I just love this scene because it so perfectly encapsulates that like teenage desire to be left alone leave me alone you don't understand me go away i'm by myself but that complete contradiction with that desperate desire to reach out to someone to connect to anyone 
that like I feel so many people go through where like you you push people away for attention which is a contradiction of terms uh, and like you know this story and like you know she will not have an honest conversation with you because it's not in her makeup right now um of her personality and stuff but she she against all against everything against everything she said does have that connection with grace and does like her as a person and it's brave of her to read this thing to her like you know she wrote this and she's illustrated it and like to sit there with grace and read the whole thing to her and then just stop and then that's just the end and it's just like wow like this is the movie like (laughs) this is the whole thing and and grace makes the decision to write up a recommendation to to jack and just kind of stop um, the weekend visits or investigate or something we we don't need to know but she has recommended some action that we will later see is not taken but yeah yeah that this is the that's the home run scene in the movie it's the thing that like comes to mind when uh, actually the first thing that comes to mind is is the the book ended beginning and ending scene like just that establishment of the tone and and the callback and the happy ending of like a story interrupted by a runner but then after that it's this scene and i'm just like wow like who how do you write this how do you act this (laughs) fever is fever and uh, brie larson are both incredible yeah in this one scene but we do get a little bit of of levity yes in between this because we get like more of mason and grace just being like a nice friendly couple like grace has told mason that she's pregnant and they've gone to mason's foster parents and he does this absolutely lovely speech about isn't it lovely isn't it lovely like just the kind of best case scenario for one of these toasts um and and yeah finding out that he is one of dozens of foster children and yeah like this this couple who've been together 30 years have basically dedicated their life yeah to like just fostering kids and making sure they have a good life yeah. and I, I is it is it implied that that mason was like the first i don't child? know maybe because like he's the only one who makes a speech he is yeah and he does i guess look a bit older than some of them and he tries in spanish and and you know to, to me it sounds fine but obviously to a native speaker it doesn't yeah. and like you know him acknowledging like this um, this is why he's decided to dedicate his life to this stuff and because of the pregnancy and because they seem to be getting along better uh mason proposes to grace mm-hmm. at this at this party which yes. i mean like like not like in front of everyone he doesn't no. try to upstage his parents but just, he does just whispers in her ear while they're dancing um, then the other shoe falls and there's a phone call saying that her dad can be released from prison after 10 years and i love that your first read on this because you've seen this situation so many times man oblivious to pregnant girlfriend who has an abortion appointment answers phone and Mm. you're like oh it's gonna be the clinic calling to confirm and he's gonna flip out on her and it's no it's it's yeah her father is getting out and like when he comes back and tries like the second his hands touch her shoulders she just gets up and walks out and like she's made herself bleed from like scratching is it the side of her head or is it the thumb again but it's uh, her thumb again yeah okay, she but like... there is blood on oh it's from when she's touched her head after doing yeah. it yeah yeah and yeah and it, it just goes from bad to worse from here because oh man i <laughs> marcus's fish I, I have owned two fish like this, and it is very sad when they die. Um, but, but like, but not even in a. Is it the implication that the fish was like knocked over, or is it that, that it just kind it, of? It looks an awful lot like someone did this, and you are led to believe it might have been Luis. And I like that 
because obviously she finds Marcus. Stuff happens in between, but kind of she finds Marcus on the floor and then with a piece of glass in his hand and then Luis is like face down on his bed and she is checking if he's fucking alive and he was just asleep with headphones in. And yeah. then you turn around and you see yeah. Marcus fall on and you see he slit his wrist and yeah. Yeah. Like, and just it, you know I I was making a slightly flippant comment about owning a fish like but like you know my situation is different to his and that like this fish means so much to him and like you know not everyone has a fish and you get the idea that like this was like a treat maybe he got after several years or something I don't know I'm filling in yeah, gaps like the, here, the but... point is that like Marcus has been in this situation for three years he is yeah. Like most kids are there for a couple of months, he is here for three years. It's he is an abnormal case and yeah. is obviously not reacting well to having to return to the world and yeah. to have this lifeline disappear on him for whatever reason. Yeah, just, um, and like that's that's how it can be. Like something that seems so trivial can be just like the straw that broke the camel's back and everything. And, yeah. yeah, and it's it's kind of sad that this is Lakeith's exit to the movie. Yeah, like I, yeah, I'm glad he doesn't die, <laughs> but. But he still looms over the movie even after he's mm. gone. I mean, that's the thing is, I like that even though the movie is very obviously a almost two-handed between Jaden and Grace, they do have time for these little tiny stories that are going on at Short Term 12 because, like, Sam, in the back... Sammy and his dolls. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's the other one that's kind of going on in the background is that Sammy has been told that he's not allowed his dolls anymore. All of these dolls that belong to his, his sister who died and he is completely unable to kind of let go and the psychiatrist makes a decision to just remove them. Like, he has to grow up and not deal with things in this way. And we see Sammy early on in the movie just playing around with all these little dolls. Yeah. And it does just that, that he's like almost catatonic afterwards, yeah. and Nate and gets it, his big moment. Yeah. Yes, like where Nate is just hoovering up in the aftermath of everything that's gone on in the, for the day or whatever, and finds like one of the little dolls under the sofa, yeah. and just gives it back to Sammy, and just like there've been little moments of kindness where Sammy's kind of reacted, like when they bring him a cupcake on Jane's birthday. Yeah. He he looks at the cupcake, but this one it feels like yeah. he's turning a corner, like. They didn't need to get rid of everything. Yeah. They they only needed to get rid of some of them. Like this should have been a gradual process, not a, yeah. a yeah. And again, the the unseen post credits horrible real world implication is Nate gets fired from his posting because he went against therapist orders or whatever. But mm. it gets to be nice in the movie. And speaking of therapist orders, yeah, Grace has her big blow up with Jack about this and she gets fucking fired, but obviously he doesn't follow through on it when it all ultimately turns out to be legit, but, like, finding out that Jaden has been taken by her father for the weekend, and... Like, she's not very professional, like... That's... No, 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 she's... Like, you, 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 she goes into the room and just starts swearing at him, and he's just like, calm down, sit down, let's actually have a conversation about this. Yeah. And even though she is correct, and even though she... Mm probably is also correct about like oh especially if they're buddies of yours yeah she isn't she yeah she's isn't really reacting. pushing that line there yeah basically inferring that like you're willing to overlook yeah. a girl crying out for help in exchange for like protecting a friend of yours yeah exactly and um, she you know she and jack having to say that like look social workers have asked her and she has said that her father has never abused her and everything and like I do like, he's not a complete asshole because we do get that line where he's like, look, every time I look into one of these kids' eyes, I want to go beat the shit out of whoever did it to them. But, you know, 
we can't without cause and you know grace is overstepping her bounds and like you see how it's affecting her because she says send her back to the shark which is her you know reading of Jaden's story and that can't make any sense to jack unless she put all of it in the report which she maybe didn't read but yeah that like she is very emotionally involved in this that she is using Jaden's phraseology and like the big line about this is the only way she knows how that that girl cried and she told me and tried to tell me the only way she knows how and relating it to her own father and like you know because when she's talking to a social worker she imagines him right behind her and yeah like yeah like and, he's, and there he's is a, always watching he is always present he yeah. is he is someone who knows everything that she ever says like yeah. he hasn't being able to understand that there are safe spaces for her to process this. And there is a tragic version of this movie where she has completely misread this and has overstepped everything and is wrong, basically. Um, And I'm glad that she is right. But Uh, Yeah. The the alternate version of this is it's the Hurt Locker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As, as, As we will get into the scene in a second. But first we have Mason and Grace almost break up. In, mm. in the hospital when they're kind of waiting to find out whether or not Marcus has, has been able to be yep. saved. She reveals that she's going to get an abortion, that she no longer wants to marry him, and it just feels like it's not a logical thing that she's doing. It's just... I just think there's a lot of emotional yeah, trauma like, has come up. I think the father is probably the, father, the biggest one. Yeah, the father and Grace and like we will find out what exactly... <laughs> her father did to her which is why the pregnancy is looming over her uh-huh. and but this is and she's not said any of this to mason and like this is what i'm saying of like obviously i think his worst thing is when the second he finds that out he says whatever do what you want i don't care anymore and that's like the most dickish he will be but this is also where he says for three years you have not told me at some point you have and like she makes a point of how supportive he is and he says that, like, you know... I, I think he repeatedly says that, like, you know, he he's, like, so impossibly in love with her and everything. But, like, yeah, that, like, this... She is unable to tell him. And I think if he had that information, he would handle this moment better. But he doesn't. So he can only work with what he's got. And he does the classic, like, all right, fuck you, I'm breaking up with you because you're going to have an abortion of my child. And like her phrasing of like, I can't marry you. I can't, you know, these are not things I can do. Like, like I, yeah, it, it feels like in the moment with the knowledge that he has, it's more understandable, but obviously we spent more time with grace and have kind of charted her. I, yeah. I don't want to say decline, but definitely just how much of a toll these last few days have kind of had on her. Yeah. Oh, like, I, I also like the touch that in between this, because we start the movie with, she cycles to work without him and he drives and he de- she declines a lift home with him. There is a scene in between where she lets him drive her to work and you're sort of like, oh, they're on the ups kind of thing. Mm. And then obviously she cycles away after this scene. But Yeah. I mean, but like, I do like that that leads to the the very funny moment when Marcus is doing his like little circle rap and <laughs> like makes a reference that like, everyone knows that you two are dating. Yeah, everyone like, knows. <laughs> you are not subtle at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so this this leads to the Hurt Locker moment when <laughs> Grace busts into David's dad's house, grabs a baseball bat, and like stands over like, his unconscious <laughs> body. Yeah. Like he's drunk too much, and then Jaden being so calm in this and goes like a little bit extreme, a little bit much, yeah, a little bit much. <laughs> and like before she even goes in, like the music is like really swelling as she really is 
deliberating this decision on the back doorstep because it's like the second you open that door this is potential career bye-bye um and potential prison but yeah and then like that Jaden will just calmly walk downstairs and talk to her about it and then we get these like enormous bombshells and like one of the most hideous things I've ever heard and like I'm not saying it's good because it's so extreme but just sort of that the the extremity of her father got her pregnant Mm. um and that her father made her shower with him and stuff like that and it's just like okay everything yeah like the the (laughs) idea that that grace like because her father's been in prison 10 years so it says that like she was a teenager when all of this happened Mm -hmm. like and she's dealing with the death of her mother and just Mm -hmm. it's just like compounding how awful and awful everything is and it kind of slots into place and explains yes so much of the way that she acts around stuff and and that like the idea of a normal conventional family is not something that she can ever imagine for herself because of what that was like for her and her issues towards intimacy and and everything it's like yeah yeah, okay i understand (laughs) i don't want to say it's a game of one-upmanship but it is (laughs) like after Jaden shows her bruises and just goes like her dad lashes out with her he gets drunk and yeah like and then she goes like yeah my (laughs) here's all the terrible ways that my dad abused me yeah but Uh, i mean i think this is the first person she's potentially ever told well i mean her father's in prison so you assume this is is the first person that she's told in like the rebuilt life potentially that she's had yeah yeah yeah. where she's basically she has assembled her own set of walls and rules and she has her triggers and she you know navigates her life in a certain way to evade this ever having to come up and this is the first time she's willingly told someone and i think Jaden appreciates that and and realizes that and they you know, they cry together, and then they smash his car up together. <laughs> and I like that the windshield is a realistic one, where, like, the side windows smash, it, it turns to dust immediately, but then, like, Brie Larson is up on that car, wailing on that windshield, and it just sort of caves in and without actually breaking. And, like, that looks somewhat real. Like, there are shards of something flying off at her while she's doing it, and I, I don't know, I, I wonder if, like... <laughs> I mean, it must it, like that must have been a fun scene to shoot. Yes, I do like the idea of them having this like sub million dollar budget going out and buying like a five thousand dollar car or something like that and just <laughs> just wailing on it because this is very much like not like they probably only had one chance to do this and everything like that. Yeah, which is why the camera hangs out so much on her just repeatedly wailing on it and. Yeah. It feels more therapeutic than when she steals the the lamp from Jack's office and smashes oh, it yeah. on the ground. His lamp that you turn on by touching the button. Yeah, and I like that she's worried about the father waking up and Jaden's like, oh, he'll sleep through anything. It's like, will the, will the neighbours? Like, surely someone's <laughs> going to look outside and call the police. When uh, American houses are too far away from each other. Of like, course. you can't actually hear stuff from... American excess <laughs> strikes again, but... And then them leaving together and Jaden, like, hugging her. Or oh, her arms wrapped around her while she's on the back of her bike and it's just so lovely. And we saw earlier that, like, when they went back to short-term 12 before she like fell asleep with her head on her shoulder and stuff and just like you know these two and like it would be a step too far if like they adopted Jaden but like the the bond between these two is is just so lovely you get the scene of her sat there with with Jack and the therapist or whatever kind of like detailing what her father's done to her yep and I think it's the one the one thing that I'm a bit annoyed the movie's a bit too clean about is like there's no hint about like what 
what does this mean? Like, yeah, what what is what the struggle she goes through? Because obviously Grace has been through this. Grace has reported her father to the police yep. and managed to get him in prison for ten years. This is not an easy process because she will presumably be brought to the stand, have to do witness statements, yep. be pulled from her father, spend the next couple of years of her life in this I kind think, of environment. I think they don't make minors testify in full court. I think they deposition them in private and show it. Yeah, yeah, but, but that's still like, but they still. She still have to go through oh, yeah. that process, and it's not telling one social worker once; it's telling multiple social workers and a lawyer and someone else uh, and a and cop. The police and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and also like the tragic part of all of this kind of stuff is so many kids don't say anything, not just because of fear, but like the unknown of what your life looks like after that. Like, you could get adopted by some horrible fucking people. Um, or, or you could or bounce the- around homes. You could be Marcus, who's in there for three years. Like, Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, the older you are, the less likely you are to, to get adopted. Yeah, people don't want the old dog. They want the puppy. And, yeah, that that is an unspoken part of this. That, like, who knows what happens to Jaden after this? I mean, obviously, if she stays in short-term 12 for a while, she'll be in good hands with Grace. But, like, what happens after that? Like, we don't know. And, and the movie makes the decision to kind of show good stuff like Grace starts seeing a therapist randomly played by Melora Walters <laughs> in like a very brief cameo where it seems like she's finally getting her life in order and talking about this stuff and her getting the ultrasound with Mason and it seems like they've turned a corner in their relationship yeah and, and I genuinely like elated to see the kid and like you know before that they they spoon and Mason says how Marcus is going to be okay and it's like oh thank god like you could easily see a version of this movie where that is like Marcus dies, but yeah, and then like such a wonderful oh, and Jaden like hangs all the cards up in her room, and we end on this as as we've mentioned multiple times, this yeah. lovely book ending scene where I love the story so much. Yeah, like yeah. so the story is that there was a girl who was like the coolest girl they've ever had uh, at short term twelve, and I like that he sort of he's trying to not be gross, but he's saying yeah. this was a hot seventeen year old, <laughs> and and that like. Stephanie Beatrice's character is sort of like, ew, and then uh, Grace does jump in and goes, oh, she was very pretty. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, he's not trying to be creepy about it, he's just saying, look, all the boys wanted you... to bang her. <laughs> yeah, like, and she's a little bit older, a little bit more aloof, like one foot out the door kind of thing, and similar to Marcus in late years, and how a new kid arrived at Short Term 12, and after a week of not saying anything, just kind of gets up at one of those sessions and just says, like... Shoots his shot. <laughs> yeah, shoots his shot you're the most beautiful girl and I'd love for you to date me and she just says nothing and yeah. it's like the most gutting embarrassing thing that could happen to anyone ever and we get the revelation that it was Marcus yeah and then and- Sammy runs again I like that he's got his American flag as a cape like we see him <laughs> carefully preparing that yeah this is this is the one that ends up in as the poster yeah <laughs> uh, and like you get like these slow motion shots and everything like that of everything happening and we find out that Marcus is working at Aquarium which is another like wonderful like full circle moment where he's gone from taking care of his fish to taking care of a lot of it like that's such a that's so nice like that like just yeah and they find Mason and Grace find him at a coffee shop and they have a conversation with him and then lo and behold and that he will not stop talking either like because he's been so quiet throughout the movie and he's like such a little chatterbox and he's like it's like Marcus drinks cappuccinos and stuff like that and like you know he's going to He's going to start taking classes at a university and stuff, or, or a and, community and college, these, probably. This is what these people live for, is these kind of, like, good stories of the kids that they've taken care of, having, yeah. like, good, successful lives. And then it turns out he's on a date, and the girl who walks out of the bathroom is is this girl from from three years ago who completely blew him off. Yep. 
amazing. Just, yeah. Oh. yeah, it's it's a. I do like that it's a happy ending than the first story because we didn't touch on it. But the first story that they told at the start of the movie, oh, even fuck, though yeah. even <sighs> though the original ending of that story is Mason shits himself and they go back to short term twelve. The true ending is he tried to escape the next time and ended so, up dead in the ditch. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it's it's like that's the thing is the dichotomy of these two things is sometimes these yeah. kids get to go out and live happy successful lives and sometimes they just don't, yeah. and yeah. you have to live with that. And I could see some people like potentially objecting that it's a little bit too neat of a, every, a very, everything kind of works out for everyone almost. Um, it's a little bit too clean. Like yeah. obviously, as we've done, we can pick out things and go like, where does this go? Yeah, but. I do think there's enough there that is heavy, and I think there is enough there that they're not saying everything will be okay for Jaden, and they're not saying everything will work out with Mason and Grace. I think there's enough trauma covered, there is enough sort of both sides of the story shown that while it does end happy, there are those sort of things where it's like, well, very easily this could end up bad or whatever and i don't know i i think for some people there's this idea that like a good arty indie film has to be sad as fuck and i think this is sad as fuck in places but it's also got that levity and i think it's fine to end in a, in a more hopeful place you know like this is a, a horrible job they do i don't know how people can do it like the, the I, emotional I, toll it would take yeah um, i genuinely think it's fascinating this movie only does the very little money that it does hmm. because i think this movie could play like gangbusters like yeah. this could have been like i think people love a best case scenario ending <laughs> sure i i do think it's interesting that if this movie had gotten maybe like a lot more oscar buzz than it got and yeah. it was nominated for best picture and best director and it wins best actress i think maybe this movie doesn't have the special glean that it has yeah like yeah. i think i think there is a world in which if this movie is nominated for oscars it becomes seen as oscar bait and i think there is enough here that makes it more interesting than that even yeah. if it is quite traditional in like how it looks and stuff like that but i do think this is it's just like a nice little gem you can tell people about and just yeah, and like, just recommend wholeheartedly and I, I think it's similar to the narrative of la la land where the best thing that ever happened to la la land was losing best picture <laughs> like if La La Land won Best Picture, I think that is like it's not the worst decision the Oscars have ever made. But I do think it becomes part of its narrative that this movie beat Moonlight. Yeah. Which and I think this this movie has that narrative of this movie got no Oscar nominations despite the fact being better than so many other movies that came out in 2013. Mm. And I think that helps this movie an awful lot. Yeah. Like. I think Social Network is just a towering achievement of, of, of technical filmmaking and, and acting and, and everything. Scott Pilgrim is just such a mashup of everything I'm I like, but this is so good and holds such a special place in my heart. And like I, you know, I've been ranking after we've been doing the episodes on my letterbox, and so far I have it at number three. I don't know how high it will end, but yeah, I just it's so good. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I've got it in a similar place. I might need to go through and I deliberated and... about Black Swan, which I really liked on a second viewing, but I have put it just ahead of Black Swan this time. But so good. And again, if you've not seen this movie and you didn't watch it before listening to this and we've just broken the whole thing down for you, I hope it's at least interesting conceptually and it makes you want to go and see the movie because us telling you everything that happened doesn't take away from how good everyone is in it. So, go watch it if you haven't. 
immediately. It's, it's a good movie. Right. So that leaves us with your pick, I believe, next week. Yeah, from one uh, short-term living establishment to another kind of it's yeah kind of... with our with our final returning director i believe this miniseries i don't think we're doing any other movies that will have had directors from the first miniseries anyway it's crown budapest hotel it's wes anderson's own and it, it is a pick from me so the most wes anderson-y movie that's ever wes anderson it really is and maybe that's why it's my favorite of his i know it's not the mo- i don't think anyone dislikes it but i think when people go for their favorite anderson it's always tenenbaums or life aquatic i just think moonrise kingdoms. i feel moonrise kingdoms yeah but for me it's grand budapest hotel uh so that will be next week i think this is like the platonic ideal of what a wes anderson movie yeah can be so that has been our episode on short term 12 matthew as we wrap up tell me will there be any more movies that gross this low amount of money i really sincerely hope not because i mean just to go back to it just i mean like above it blackfish austin land the stroller strategy still life we could probably fade out while i'm doing this cinco de mayo la batala home run romeo and juliet rigor mortis top gun 2013 3d re-release <laughs>